You're listening to the Oil and Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. So this is the Oil and Gas This Week podcast. This is the number one podcast in the oil and gas industry on the planet. Sitting here with Jake Corley. We're live here at National Oil Varco Shrimp Oil. Everybody's having a good time. Got a bite to eat. Got a chance to tour their equipment. And we're actually going to jump into some news articles, and then we're going to have a guest. But before we do that, Jake, let's uh, thank our on-the-road sponsors. So for this year, uh, Total Lands, on-the-road sponsor. Total Lands, the world's most advanced field land management system. They're literally the landman's virtual office. And also Lee Hecken Harrison, global experts in talent management. Lee Hecken Harrison is currently helping over 75% of the Fortune 500 oil and gas companies with leadership and workforce transformation. So, Jake, let's uh, go ahead and jump into the news articles. What we got going on? So this week, ExxonMobil and Chevron have both released quarterly results uh, and each reported results that have beat the estimates. Um, so Exxon, of course, is the world's largest publicly traded integrated oil and gas company. Um, so with the first quarter, they earned uh, $4 billion, an increase of 122% from the first quarter of 2016. You're, you're popping. Am I popping? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So an increase of 122% from first quarter of 2016. ExxonMobil's not hurting, are they? No, not at all. Yeah. So what's going on with cash flow with Exxon? So cash flow from operations was $8.2 billion in Q1 versus $4.8 billion a year ago. Um, the primary drivers for the higher profit in cash flow is the obvious commodity prices. Um, in addition to being one of the world's largest oil producers, ExxonMobil is actually one of the, I think they're actually the largest natural gas producer here in the U.S. Um, so with natural gas prices going up, that also significantly helped them on that end. Um, overall, uh, oil equivalent production saw a decline of 4%. Um, as opposed to a year ago. But like we said, with the commodity prices going up, they're doing obviously a little bit better. Upstream earnings of the U.S. Uh, were a total loss of $18 million compared to a loss of $832 million in the first quarter of 2016. Upstream earnings outside the U.S. were $2.3 billion, up from $1.5 billion the prior year. Uh, now moving on to the downstream, downstream earnings were $1.1 billion, up from 21% from the first quarter of 2016. And where have we heard before about downstream just rocking and rolling? Somewhere. I've heard it. I can't remember where. That sounds so really If familiar. you're ExxonMobil and a piece of your business grows 21% year over year, that's incredible. Uh, downstream U.S. earnings were $292 million, up from 56% uh, from the quarter of 2016. So higher downstream earnings were a result of both higher margins and actual higher volumes compared to 2016. And I'll tell you something else about Exxon. They did a really good job seeing this downturn coming, using their position and their cash flow and their capital to put themselves in a place that when, as the market came back, they would benefit from it. This is a direct result of them doing this. You know, I say this all the time, but I think ExxonMobil is probably the best oil and gas uh, engineering and project management company on the planet, and this just shows that they're doing a great job. But Exxon's not the only one doing better. Yeah, so Chevron also is uh, swinging back to profit in Q1. Uh, earnings of $2.7 billion in the first quarter compared to a loss of $725 million for the same period of 2016. Um, obviously, again, a lot of, a lot of this is uh, due to the commodity prices. Um, but they also had some gains uh, due to an upstream asset sale of $600 million, um, which was reducing operating expenses uh, and lowering capital spending. Let me let me stop you right there. Hey, so everybody in the audience that's walking by, you're listening to Oil & Gas This Week, which is the number one podcast on the planet in oil and gas. The pretty young woman out there holding the microphone is not just doing it for fun. If you'd like to join the conversation, walk by page, grab the microphone. We'd love to have you on. <laughs> 
So anyway, Jake, keep going with Chevron. Uh, international upstream also swung to a profit of 1.4 billion from a loss of 609 million earlier in the year. Um, yeah, Chevron's U.S. downstream uh, boosted earnings to 469 million, up from 247 million in Q1 of 2016. Uh, cash flow from operations, which is obviously one of the most closely watched figured for oil and majors balance sheets, uh, jumped to 3.9 billion, up from 1.1 billion. That's a huge jump. So what does yeah. this mean? We got two of the largest producers in the world finally showing back to profit. Yeah. So it's nice to see that the upstream side of the house is starting to come back. And I actually think it's going to come back much swifter on land. And, 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 and I think a lot of the majors agree with me because you've noticed in the last year their CapEx investments have all been toward land, not toward water. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how that. Hey, how you doing? Yeah. yeah. Good ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> So, all right, so we talked about uh, Exxon and Chevron's uh, rebounding. What else is going on in the news world? All right, so while on the topic of things going well, this next article is talking about are things possibly going a little too quickly uh, in the actual Permian. So uh, the next article is saying, is the Permian starting to get a little too crowded? Uh, first quarter, U.S. oil and gas M&A uh, obviously topped $73 billion in the first quarter, which is a 160 increase year on year. We talked about that a podcast or two ago. <laughs> Uh, 20 out of the 53 deals were actually made in the Permian. So one can, can help but wonder, when is the play actually going to get too crowded? Yeah, that's a hard one to call. There's, um, there's a lot of people looking at this trying to figure out what's going on. Um, I actually, at this point, don't have an opinion yet. <laughs> Give me another month or two and I'll, I'll, we'll have enough so data. We in March can... alone, the Railroad Commission issued 1,310 new drilling permits. Uh, most of these were for actually the Permian. Um, this number's up more than twice from a year ago, which was only 511 permits. Yeah. So, uh, see, so you got some Price Warehouse Cooper analysts looking at uh, break-even prices are dropping steadily. So, that actually, people can predict, and you're starting to see people come back in at a much rapid pace. And then you see people selling assets as well. So, a lot of activity in the Permian. All good stuff. Hey, if you're walking by, this is the Oil and Gas This Week podcast. It's the number one podcast in the oil and gas industry on the planet. Young woman out there with the microphone, would love to have you join us. Right, Jump right in. We'd love to have a question, a comment. Um, tell us how good the ice cream is that you're walking by with. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Jake. So we had some good news uh, uh, articles, good stuff there. And since we're at National Oil Well and we're at the Shrimp Well, what we want to do is actually we're going to bring on a guest. And so um, we're going to have some pretty uh, deeper conversations around some of the work all National Oil Well is doing as far as drilling technology. And unfortunately, Jake, you and I, neither one of us have virtually inexperienced with that other yep. than drilling holes and <laughs> cars <laughs> so we got patrick joining us on the mic and hey yo mark how you doing today uh, awesome patrick how's your day going it's good it's hot but there's ice cream there's water there's beer he, he could have stayed on that mic and better for him to be between us i think we're gonna okay. have a conversation yeah yeah so we haven't we haven't got any beer yet although people do keep taking our water yeah, they think we're here just to give things away as well. Yeah. <laughs> the, the big sign out there, it says podcast. It does not say hydration. If you need hydration, there's water all over the place, including by the front entrance. Yep, um, correct. So, Patrick, who do we have on today as a guest? We've got Steve Pink here today to talk about rig automation, drilling automation. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, Steve, before we get started in drilling automation, how did you get in this industry? Um, okay, well, uh, I left the Royal Navy in 1996 and uh, had a degree in geology. Uh, and thought probably the best place to go make a living was putting holes in the ground. Yeah. Um, so I started working for Baker Hughes uh, all over West Africa uh, and then joined um, Halliburton and Sperry's son 
1998. Yeah, you're dating yourself when you say Perry's son. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the old days, and that was when they were, were truly great, I have to admit. They, they actually, they, they were. Um, but anyway, so uh, Patrick, I'm going to sort of let you kind of lead this conversation. I'm going to jump in whenever I can because y'all were geeking out a little while, and I literally couldn't follow you. Y'all were going so <laughs> deep. Yeah, so this, uh, it, like we were talking a little bit earlier. I'm, you know, I know enough to be dangerous about I mean, offshore drilling, but um, when we talk about rig automation, the automation I know is a cyber drilling chair, mechanical automation. You do one function, set it to repeat, it brings a, a stand over to well center, and you just keep doing that. So, but you're talking about a lot more sophisticated automation. Yeah, today, um, NOV's uh, doing some really, really, truly innovative things. Um, we can talk about, um, there's elements of it that are, are looking at mechanization, um, but what we're really uh, working in, which is far more complex, is a, a combination of process control, uh, downhole data-driven uh, closed-loop automation, and combining that with uh, surface equipment automation. Absolutely, yeah, and I, you know, something as simple as a pipe tally, I mean, it's... I don't so know let me, how, let me back you up, Patrick. People don't know what a pipe. I'm sure, everybody here does, but our <laughs> audience may not. What's a pipe tally? Pipe tally. So whenever you're putting pipe down hole to make your hole, you got to keep track of it. You need to know where you are in the hole uh, for any number of reasons. But a, a good one is well control. You need to know where that tool joint is so you don't close the BOP on it. You correct me if I'm wrong, Steve. If there's no, I, I, absolutely. Um, when you uh, when you're typically drilling a well, you need to know where every single tool joint is in the event that you have a well control situation and you need to space out correctly. Uh, if you bridge across uh, the BOP with a tool joint, you reduce the likelihood you're going to ha have a successful shear of the pipe in the event of a loss of well integrity. Um, so one of the technologies that um, we're, uh, we're pioneering in uh, is uh, using a technology known as uh, Track ID. Now what that is, an RFID trip, which is implanted into drill pipe and enables us to create an electronic uh, drill pipe tally which is kept continuously. It monitors hours, uh, rotational hours, bottom uh, circulating hours on that. Gives us the ability to manage our pipe in a much more efficient manner and actually better understand where our drill, how our drill pipe's being used, its lifespan and its integrity. Yeah, and so that must just take the human error element out of it completely. Absolutely, and a, a lot of a lot of what we're trying to do is is reduce those natural behaviours that we have as humans. We're we're fallible. Um, whereas computer systems typically and algorithms are typically much more reliable in doing those highly repetitive tasks that can lead to small errors that can have large magnitude um, challenges. Yeah, and the machine doesn't care if it got in a fight with its wife that night. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh -huh. well, Mark, Steve and I were talking. I, I was on an incident investigation where a simple thing is missing a decimal or moving one over. And that was done in Excel. So we were keeping a pipe tally in Excel, a, a very simple um, I was tasked to go in and write a conditional formatting metric to just show when something messed up, that which the error could still happen. You could still have you know, an unknown number of joints uh, down hole, um, but automating it is, it, like I said, takes out that human error and you don't have those mistakes, those lapse in judgment. Yeah, yeah. And if you're walking by, you're listening to Oil & Gas this week. This is the number one oil and gas podcast on the planet. We're sitting here broadcasting live from National Oil Well. The pretty young woman out there with the microphone is not there for her own amusement, although she does amuse herself often. Um, we'd like to have you join in on the conversation. So uh, reach out to Paige, grab the microphone, and uh, we'd love to have you jump in. So anyway, Steve, um, back to the RFID tag and the, uh, the taking the human element error out of this, it also has to be quick, quicker, right? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. The, the way the system works um, in, for this particular uh, technology is we, we have a donut that's installed in the uh, rotary table. We have the RFID tag which is installed uh, into the uh, drill pipe. Uh, it's a passive system. Um, so the, uh, the longevity and uh, reliability of the RFID tags is extremely high. And as the uh, tool joint passes through the rotary, uh, the, the, the donut records the, uh, the identity of that pipe, what its length and all its mechanical properties, and therefore you are able to populate um, a uh, E, what is an electronic pipe tally in an automated manner. So this donut you install, it's not intrusive, it doesn't change the ID of the? Absolutely not. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Do, you, do you still have, when you're having these conversations, do you still have people um, keeping their pipe tallies on paper or in Excel? Yeah, today, um, a lot of, a lot of the, the industry as a whole is, is relatively slow often to adopt uh, technology, partly because they associate cost, etc. Um, but uh, as a result of the downturn, what we're seeing is a, a lot of technology that drives efficiencies uh, is, becoming, is moving to the forefront um, and operators uh, and contractors are starting to see these technologies as differentiators to, to make their business easier, more efficient and cost effective. Absolutely, and um, it's, it's funny, we talked a little bit early, NOB's clients aren't actually the ones sometimes you need to sell to. Sometimes you have to sell to their, your clients' clients because they're the operators. They're the ones who want to increase those efficiencies but aren't as worried about the, uh, the downtime. They, uh, drilling contractors are so risk averse. Any new technology, well, if it's going to cause us downtime, who takes it? That's, that's the first question they're going to ask. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of the technology that we're talking about today is all about actually reducing the likelihood of downtime. Um, uh, certainly some in the, in the uh, space of automation, it's not only efficiency, but it's also a reduction in invisible lost time, non-productive time, and all of those things that um, reduce the, uh, the effectiveness of the drilling contractors. So there is, there is a differentiator for them. If they are able to demonstrate to uh, the operators that they are the fastest, lowest uh, ILT uh, running uh, drilling contractor, what a selling point. Absolutely, so um, I guess one, one thing that would lead me to, to question is, are we making things too easy for the drilling crew to when this piece of equipment for some reason goes out, now they have to rely on the skills that they haven't had to, you know, the muscles they haven't had to flex in a while, is it? No, I, I think what we're doing is we're, we've, today we have a generation of individuals that are growing up in a, in a high-tech, uh, software-driven environment. Those are, are platforms that they're familiar with and that they use uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. What we're doing is we're now giving them a different set of tools, <laughs> makes their job easier, but it actually means they're actually more available to some of the more safety-critical um, roles such as uh, monitoring role bore integrity, looking after the safety of their people on the rig floor, and actually looking into their job in more detail. And we're actually changing the skill sets of the people that um, populate our industry. So when we talk about automation, and one of the most critical components on the rig is your stack, your BOP, are you saying that now we can automate well control? Um, well, we, t we don't truly want to automate con well control. What we're trying to do in the long term, um, what we're doing today, we're looking potentially into how we could uh, potentially make a well safe. So take, take a, uh, a change in the well bore condition and then uh, evaluate it. And in the event that uh, the drill crew doesn't react to, this, to the event in uh, change in wellbore condition, a, a, a small kick, losses, so, yeah, you returns, could see a, anything. You could see an influx, you could see losses. And what the system theoretically 
uh, could do in the long term is uh, by knowing where the tool joints are, the system could then raise the, uh, the draw works, raise the blocks, bring the tool joint above the BOP. Uh, using downhole pressure data, it's now evaluated that there is something untoward going on. Uh, it, in theory, we, we could automate the closing of the annular preventer and potentially the rams and rendering the, the wells safe. But are we then going to automate the well control process? No. What we've done is we've brought the rig to a safe state so that decisions can then be made um, to how that influx is then managed in an appropriate way. Let's, yeah, so um, you said some a lot of interesting things there. Um, let's do a little education and backup. Why, hey, do, why Patrick, are we worried about where the tool joint is? Before what? we go down there, let me just, so if you're just walking by and you're wondering what these people are doing talking, this is Oil & Gas This Week. This is the number one oil and gas podcast on the planet. We're sitting here live at National Oil of Arco Shrimp Oil, and we're doing a deep dive into some new te technology that National Oil Wells uh, uh, bring into the market. If you want to join the conversation, and we would love for you to join the conversation, wave your hand. We have a microphone. It takes all of 30 seconds. We'd love to have you jump right in. All right, Patrick, roll it back to you. Yeah, so, um, Steve, just you know, give our audience a little understanding. You know, what, what is a tool joint, and, and why do we even care where it is in the, in the well bore? Okay, so the tool joint is the, is the inherently strongest part of a, uh, a tubular, of a, drill, a piece of drill pipe. Drill pipe, yeah. So in the event that you have uh, a loss of well integrity and that you actually need to come to a safe state, you do not want that tool joint bridged across where your shear rams are going to function because then what you're actually having to shear is a significantly larger volume of, of steel and the potential for a failure in that shearing process and therefore in the long term a loss of well integrity is critical. So ideally what we want to do is space out get so that the only part of the pipe that we're going to shear is the actual tube which is the smallest and weakest part of the pipe and facilitates more efficient shearing. Right, so knowing where those tool joints are, it's critical to well control. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah. yeah so we're getting close to winding down the show. If you're walking by, I've never said this a hundred times. I've got times. so much more, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is Oil & Gas This Week, the number one podcast on the planet in the oil and gas industry. We're going to take a little break after we shut this one down, and we're going to come back with well, Oil & Gas. Mark, before we leave, I've got to ask, how far away are we from a, an unmanned rig? Okay. Uh, now this is a, this is a, a great question. Um, where, to some degree, we have it, we're using it, um, but it's not what everybody would consider a truly automated rig. Um, what we're now doing today with the technology um, that NOV's brought to the market, we have wired pipes, so we now have broadband from downhole to surface. We're now taking that data, uh, we're feeding it into our surface control system, then into a process controller. Um, now that process controller has apps which we're all familiar with um, and those apps have a series of complicated algorithms that are able to interrogate that high-speed data and then make decisions and actually optimize our drilling process. So we're actually using data to make decisions. We're, educate, we're, we're, we're basing our decisions on empirical data from downhole rather than building uh, decisions based on models and historical knowledge. Excellent. All right, Mark, I'm done. I, I'll, I'll rest there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if you're walking by, this is Oil & Gas eight, uh, Oil and Gas This Week, <laughs> the number one podcast in the oil and gas industry on the planet. We're sitting here live recording from National Oil of Arco Shrimp Oil during the week of OTC. We're getting ready to wind this show down. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with Red Wings Oil & Gas HS&E podcast. Um, so, uh, Steve, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks, guys, for having me. More yeah, pleasure. absolutely. It was a great conversation. Yeah, Patrick, thanks for jumping in and helping us have this conversation because there's no, no way I could have had it. a class to the show, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so if you're out there listening, we're going to shut this one down, take a little break, come back in about 15 minutes. So, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time.
Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.